Tonight I want to take you to the book of Genesis and we go to the story of the first man and, and the first woman. Uh, Pam Gordon gave me this picture of Robert when he was a young man. That's him in his pajamas. That's Robert, <laughs> Robert up on the screen. No, uh, that's a, you, can, you can guess who that is in, in just a minute. But uh, you know their first sin and the sorrow that uh, it brought into their lives and ultimately to the world? Apparently, they hope for a quick fix, as most of us do when something goes wrong in our lives. We want a quick fix. They knew that God had appointed a promised deliverer. And so when their first son was born, they named him Cain, which means he is the one. They looked to him to be the child of promise, but of course... He wasn't. That was their own plan and their own program, but we know how that turned out. Instead of being a deliverer, Cain was a murderer. Infected as he was by Adam's sin, he attacked and killed his younger brother Abel. And so the sadness of sin in this family is now compounded by the sadness of sorrow, and we've seen the outworking of that in our own lives. So let that be the first lesson we learn, although we haven't come to the scripture yet, and that is there is no solution to the sadness and sorrow of sin through any effort of your own, not through my effort or your effort or all of our collective efforts. So here they had hopes for, for Cain when he was born, and their hopes for Cain died with Abel. You know that story. But what we're going to consider is a tale of two sons, not Cain and Abel, but Cain and Seth. And so we pick up in Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 13, and that's where we're going to begin to read. Cain, of course, was punished by the Lord, and Cain said, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me uh, today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and, and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehuyael, and Mehuyael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me 
another offspring in the place or instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I've, I've told you that this is the tale of two sons, and those sons are, are Cain and Seth. So I just want you to think about a contrast. And first, we're just going to say a couple of things about Cain and come back and say a couple of things about Seth and then apply that to our own times because it is relevant. This is relevant to our day. It's relevant to this week in the life of our, our own nation. So first we see the Bible saying that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. The Bible picks up this story uh, and having Cain departing from God's presence and that's sort of what I want you to see if you can imagine that in that picture. And that was his legacy. He would live the rest of his life away from the presence of the Lord. He was a man driven, as you can see. He was driven by guilt. He was driven by fear uh, and no regard for God. He would be forever afraid that some judgment uh, would befall him for what he had done to his brother. But the worst judgment that came his way was living in fear while he lived separated from God. He lived separated from God and he would die separated from God. Then the Bible tells us he went out into the land of Nod, and the, and the word Nod means wandering, and it speaks to the aimlessness of a man without God. It speaks to the emptiness and purposelessness of a life without God. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. That's number one. The second thing that you need to see about Cain is that Cain did what most of us do. Cain created a culture that would soothe his sense of separation from God. Well, how did he do that? Well, he built a city. He built a wall city to protect himself and his family. Uh, this is the way a man lives uh, who feels that God's protection is removed from him. He lived in, as we said, in fear and guilt and dread. He built a civilization apart from God resulting in, in a godless and hopeless culture. His descendants created the first musical instruments. I love musical instruments. I love to hear the piano and the organ. I love music of all kinds. But you know, one of the things that music can do of various kinds is it can distract you from your own sense of God's presence. Oh, I know it can help you realize God's presence but it can also distract you. Any invention of man is first a distraction. I have one in my pocket. Does, it, does your cell phone ever distract you? Does your cell phone ever separate you from God? Is it a tool that God often uses in your life, or is it a tool that the devil often uses in your life? So here was a culture being created so that man could soothe his own separation from God. Think about music in the life of Saul. Nobody's music is better in the Old Testament than the music of David, the songs that he sang, the music that he played, but it only served to soothe the evil spirit from God that tormented Saul. It didn't lift him any closer to the Lord. So the godless culture was there. A godless culture meant to protect men protecting themselves, just like this is earlier than the Tower of Babel, but it's much the same thing. So the godless culture spread. I just want you to see this in Cain's family. Uh, the grandson of Cain, Lamech, 
following in the footsteps of his grandfather. First, he took two wives, the first case of polygamy in the Bible, violating God's original intention for marriage. And he too killed a man, a young man, and he bragged about it. Apparently, his grandfather uh, was noted for bragging about the fact that if anybody, nobody could touch him. I can just hear Cain saying, nobody can touch me. I killed my brother and nobody's ever going to touch me. God has said that he would bring sevenfold vengeance on anybody who touches me. So Lamech went home to his wife, after he, his wives, after he killed this young man and he said, if anybody touches me, it'll be, it was sevenfold for my granddaddy, it'll be 77-fold vengeance for me. But he wasn't talking about some promise that God had given him. This was a vow he was making himself, he would make his life about the story of further bloodshed if anybody tried to take vengeance on him. He, would, he, he predicted merciless slaughter and mass killing. That's, that was in his heart. This, is, this goes all the way back to the very beginning, a culture without any fear of God and without any need of God. Now, Adam and Eve, you have to think about Adam and Eve. Because you think about your own life and your own family. You know what's happening in your family? Do you know what's happening in the lives of your children and your grandchildren? Are you ever concerned about it? And if they knew some of these things were happening in their own family, then surely they were watching some of the consequences of their own sin continuing to unfold in the life of their grandchildren and in the life of their descendants. So Cain built a culture that was separated apart from God, a culture intentionally built away from the Lord as he was living his life. I wonder about the culture we're creating today with our own families. Look at your culture. What kind of culture did you build? I know that you are in church, but I have to think about my children. Where are they tonight? And where are your children tonight? Where are your grandchildren tonight? What kind of culture did you create? Did you create a culture that moved them toward God or that tended to move them away from God? Where did that tendency toward godless, godlessness come from in the life of Cain? What spawned it? Well, without a doubt, it was the sin of his parents. It was the sin of his parents. Adam and Eve sinned, and, and this brought the domino effect into the life of their children. How do you think they felt when they lost one son to death, another son to the devil? And I need to remind you that by losing Cain to the devil, they also lost a daughter with him because Cain's wife would have to have been one of their daughters who he dragged off to live away from God and go his godless way. This was the consequence of their sin. Do you think that Adam recognized that every sorrow that came into his life over the next 900 years was a direct result of his own sin? It should cause you to shudder to think of the, the residual impact of your sin and your family over the generations to come that will continue to spread long after you're gone. Adam lived 930 years. And for 930 years, every 
sorrow that came into the life of his family, he had to know was a direct result of his own sin. Sorrow that entered into the world. Death entered into the world. Paul's been telling us that through one man's sin. I share these things with you to make you aware of the growing heaviness that came over their hearts, the hearts of Adam and Eve. I remind you that God also said to David after his sin with Bathsheba, God said, I've forgiven you of your sin. He did say that, but he said, I need to let you know. And he listed a string of things that were going to happen. But one of the things he said is, I'm going to raise up evil against you from your own household. And David's children had a string of tragedies to follow in their lives. First, a child died, you know, and then a string of other tragedies that followed with Absalom and, 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 and one of David's daughters and all the result of David's sin and the discipline that came with it. Have you seen it in your own life? Do you deal with it uh, on a daily basis in your own family and in your own heart because of a period, a season, when you as a parent live distant from God? Now, we're not given all the details in regard to all of Adam's, Adam and Eve's other sons and daughters, but there were multitudes of them. The Bible tells us just about a handful. All we know is that he was 130 years old when Seth was born, and after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 more years for a total of 930 years. Now, I had to think about in my as I studied this passage of Scripture about how much sin and sorrow had I seen in my own short life. How much have you seen in yours? And I thought about what it would be like to be like to live 900 years and watch that stuff continue to unfold year after year. Well, after Seth was born, apparently he'd seen enough. And so we look again at the story of this birth of Seth and Eve saying, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And after Seth was born, he had a son named Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's Genesis 4, verses 25 and 26. I need to let you know that Seth's name means appointed. Of course, Eve said he's appointed in the place of Abel. She saw him as a replacement. But the birth of Seth marked another moment in, in the history of God's plan for the world. We have an election coming up in our country in just a few days. And some have suggested that it will be a major turning point in the history of our nation. You just think about it, whichever way it goes, it may be a major turning point. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm not even talking about voting tonight. I just want you to see as we move from Cain to Seth that the birth of Seth was a turning point in the history of the world at that moment. I want you to think about that. If you think I'm exaggerating, if I'm making too much out of the growing godlessness of the culture, you just ponder what happened just a few chapters later, a few generations later, when in Genesis 6, we're reading in Genesis 4 now, but in Genesis 6 we read that the thoughts of men were only evil continually from their, root, from their youth, resulting in God sending a flood that would destroy the earth and everyone on it but Noah and his family. Sin, during that period of time, was spreading like a cancer and its sorrow with it, but then came Seth, a son Adam and Eve even recognized, 
had been sent by God and Seth's life went in a different direction. He had this son, he named him Enosh, and whether it was the birth of that son or some unknown work of God's spirit, we note the first period of revival in the ancient world noted by these words, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so the second thing we see about Seth is that his leadership and his legacy moved men toward God. Perhaps they saw the state of, uh, sad state of sinful affairs in their world the way we see it in our world today on the Sunday before our upcoming election season. But they didn't go to the polls to vote. They began to call on the name of the Lord. Now what does that mean? Well, while you might think you know what it means, most people who study the passage, most scholars that, that talk about the passage say we really don't know exactly what it means. It seems to be pretty plain. I found Warren Wiersbe's explanation to be the, maybe the best when he said that during this time when the descendants of Cain were moving farther from God, the descendants of Seth were moving closer to God. I think if God wanted us to know more about the details, he would have given them to us. But I think we can say that every time in the Bible we find somebody calling on the name of the Lord, it is because they have recognized that they need him. They have discovered that they need him. They've discovered they can't solve their own problems without him. They don't have all the answers. They felt a desperate need for help outside themselves and they began to call on the name of the Lord who created them, believing that he had a greater purpose perhaps for their lives and for their world. So the people of that day, think about it. They, they just looked. Here's Adam. Adam's still living, still looking at what happened. Uh, we, we've talked much about that in the book of Romans, Adam's sin and, and, the, and the consequences of it. But here he is. He's looking at it. Look. Uh, I, I, I understand, I've lived long enough to, to regret some of the decisions I've made. Some of the decisions I've made as a pastor, as a leader, I regret some of the actions I took as a parent, even some of the discipline I, I gave to my own children. I regret some of the missteps I made as a dad and some of the missteps that I've made as a husband. I've lived long enough to see that, but I think about Adam watching all of this unfold in his world and the grief that it had to bring to his life. They saw their world on a collision course with judgment or perhaps they had just had enough sin and sorrow and now they wanted peace with God. And so during this time there, there was some measure of revival. It was God sent and it was God appointed. And that's what you'll find as people read or study this passage of scripture, they recognize Although it's not in great detail for us, there's just this picture of this revival that happened in the ancient world when men, stirred either by the sense of their own need or by some movement of God's Holy Spirit, began to call upon the name of the Lord. So now we're going to think about why God sent revival in the days of Seth. Well, I will tell you why. It was because... The world of that day was headed to destruction. You might remember that the Bible tells us in the New Testament that during the days of Noah, the spirit of Jesus was preaching through Noah 
to those people of Noah's day, warning them about the flood, stirring men to turn to God before it was too late. Uh, The God of the Bible, who the Bible says is not willing that any should perish, but for all should come to repentance, was longing even then for men to return to him. And he was working his plan through the life of one man. He was working through Seth somehow in ways we don't understand. This is what we need today. We need some divine appointment. We need some work of the Lord. But what was happening in in Seth's time is that God was at work to bring salvation to the world. He was stirring the hearts of people in advance of a coming judgment. Adam couldn't do it. Adam couldn't correct his own mistakes. Can you correct yours? I can't correct mine. Seth couldn't do it. It was something only God could do. Now today we expect an election to tip the history of our nation. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to change our nation. And I, I understand that things can get worse one way or the other. I understand that. I do know that. But spiritually, what we need is something only God can do. Today, we need a revival that can only come when men and women and boys and girls begin to call upon the name of the Lord. But that today is then. It'll take an awakening from God to make that happen. It will take a movement of God's Spirit. So here we have the tale of two sons early in the history of our world and the tale of two cultures. One son went away from the presence of the Lord and as a result of, uh, of, of his influence, uh, there was murder, more murder. There was polygamy. Uh, sin and sorrow spread like a cancer. But as a result of that other son, Seth, revival came to the world of that day. Men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, the last point I want to make is this. In every period of history, God has used someone. In every period of history, God has used someone. I want to give you an example. There have been a lot of revivals over the centuries, uh, some small, some affecting uh, entire churches, and some touching entire localities and nations. But there's been some that have been called great awakenings uh, that have affected the global Christian community. And one of those started in 1727 uh, in a Moravian community called Hernhut. Hernhut by by the way, means the Lord's Watch. It happened in Hernhut, Germany. At that time, it was Saxony, but it's modern Germany. And uh, that revival was not the greatest revival in numerical growth or geographical scope, but it was the first discernible movement of God's Spirit on a worldwide scale, 1727. The Moravians were a community that dedicated themselves to teach to the teaching of Christ in simplicity and holiness and truth. There was one man in particular, his name was Count von Zinzendorf, uh, who became appalled at the blatant ungodliness and disunity uh, in, 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 the, in the area where he lived. And so 
He called for unity and love and repentance. And it was through his leadership that on May the 12th, 1727, this small group of people signed an agreement to dedicate their lives uh, to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving themselves afresh to God and promised to bury their disputes forever. And they decided that they would set aside certain times through which they would cry out to God in earnest prayer. 1727. July the 16th, 1727. Zinzendorf poured out his soul in a public prayer before this small group of people, this little group of Moravians, asking God to forgive him, asking God to give them pure hearts and a burning love for one another. And they, it's just started something. History records that about a month later, on August the 10th, the pastor himself, while they were meeting together, was overcome with an unusual impulse threw himself on his knees before God, and the whole assembly fell on their knees before God, all singing and praying and weeping, uh, and they continued all night long. That was on August the 10th, 1727. We're talking about a little community in Hernhut, Germany, a little group of people called the Moravians. On August the 13th, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the entire assembly they were having a communion service. Loud weeping uh, broke out. A sense of God's spirit and power was vivid with everyone there enjoying inexpressible joy and love as they shared in the communion service. A few days later, in a, a remarkable revival took place among the children on the 18th of August. All the children that, that, that were at present at a boarding school were seized with an extraordinary impulse of the Spirit, and the children spent the whole night in prayer to God. And the children's lives were transformed. On August the 25th, they began, the, these, this little group of Moravians, they began a 24-hour prayer service, round-the-clock prayer service. You know how long it lasted? A hundred years this little group of Moravians. In 1728, they held their first missionary meeting. From that little group of people over the next 25 years, the Moravians sent out 100 missionaries. Over the next 300 years, over the next 65 years, they sent out 300 missionaries. Did you know if it had not been for what God did among the Moravians, there would not be a Methodist church next door because John Wesley's life was transformed in an encounter with the Moravian missionary after he had once come over here to preach and gone back to England and found out he didn't have what it took, something he, he was missing. Some, John Wesley and, and George Whitfield, who led other revivals, were impacted by this little handful of people, the Moravians who decided, God, it is so bad. It is so bad where we live. Sin is spreading like a cancer, and something needs to happen. They began to call on the name of the Lord. In every period 
of history, God has used someone. Now, you can content yourself to say, well, I can just go to the polls and I can cast my vote, put my card in the slot, and I've done all I can do. Or you could say like Count von Zinzendorf, it's time we decided that we, if nobody else, we will be the people that God wants us to be. And we will determine that we will cry out to God and not cease to cry out to God until he does what only he can do. Adam lived long enough to know he couldn't fix what he had broken. You've already lived long enough to know that you can't fix what you've broken, and we can't fix what we've broken, and it's getting worse and worse. We need something that only God can do.